This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A story of inspiration. It's a, it's a story of a young man who left such an impression on me when we last spoke. Uh, you know, one of those people who, when you talk to them, you just cannot help but be touched by their heroism, their strength, despite all the hardship they face pretty much every minute of the day. You literally cannot help but walk away uh, from meeting this little guy and saying, I really don't have any problems. He's very, very inspirational. His name is Jonathan Petre, but he has a a better known name as the Butterfly Boy. Jonathan's 16, and he has a very rare and deadly disease that causes his skin to fall off at the slightest of touches. We have some of his photos on our website, and I urge you to take a look because it'll give you an idea of what he goes through, the pain he suffers every single day. While managing the disease, you know, it takes hours of his time, his mom's time, but it's a lot to go through, and and this is what he faces. You know, only uh, about 5,000 people have what is called epidermolosis bullosa, and I think I'm saying that name wrong, but we will clarify the proper name of it. Um, And sadly, many don't actually get to adulthood. So Jonathan is is the first Canadian to take part in this fascinating clinical trial out of Minnesota, and it's groundbreaking. It's a stem cell treatment that could extend and improve his life, but it's risky. 30 children have had the treatment, and eight have not survived. So he had his first treatment yesterday. Let's check in and see how he's doing. His mother, Tina Boilu, uh, joins us now from, uh, you're in Minnesota, are you not? I am. Hi, thanks for joining us. In Jonathan's hospital room. <laughs> oh, how is Jonathan doing? Uh, you know what? With everything considered, I think he's uh, very doing very well. I mean, his spirits are good. Um, today, we were kind of surprised this morning with uh, we were thinking of having to do bath again today, but it's a bath-free day, so we're just going to kick back and enjoy our day. Yeah, and I should you know explain that Jonathan has to have you know hours of, of bathing in almost like a chlorine mix in a bath, correct? It is. I mean, yesterday was admission day, so I mean, everybody knows that when you're getting admitted to the hospital, it's kind of chaotic. So I mean, everything kind of, and I mean, we are still in Canadian time, so I mean, we're an hour ahead. And so, I mean, yesterday was like trying to sort out his medications and everything, so we ended up doing bath really late. We were done bath at like almost midnight, so that was very tiring. And then he had his first dose of chemo afterward that kind of ran until four o'clock in the morning and then he had blood transfusion that led until six o'clock this morning so it wasn't a very restful night and then Jonathan broke his feet into a fever as a result and it's kind of a side effect it's to be expected but I'm happy to say that he broke his fever on his own didn't even need medication so we're kind of looking forward to having probably a restful day today. Oh good well he deserves that so take me through the through the treatment that he's going through and and some of the things that he now has to go through uh, for the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, Jonathan had his first uh, chemo yesterday, so he'll have um, eight days of chemo, uh, one day of radiation, uh, the day of the transplant, uh, then two days of rest, and then another two days of chemo. Um, the reason why he needs uh, that much chemo like to start is to reduce his immune system so that he uh, can accept his donors, which I'm his donor on this case, uh, so that he can um, really accept uh, my bone marrow and then uh, the following chemo once after transplantation is to try to prevent the uh, graft and host disease. So basically that's when my body and his body, like our cells, would be fighting. So we're trying to avoid um, that situation because that's not good either. Um, that's why he requires that much, that much chemo. Well, what is this treatment particularly? What What is the goal of this treatment and, and how did you come across it? 
Um, I mean, we were um, six or seven years ago. We kind of had a presentation uh, done at SickKids about this treatment possibility. Um, it's like everything else. You hear about it, but it takes years before it actually becomes available. I, I actually never thought that it'd be uh, available in Jonathan's lifetime. Uh, lifetime. Um, so basically the uh, idea behind the treatment is a uh, bone and marrow transplant. Uh, so basically uh, the goal is to um, try to reduce Johnson's immune system completely and then induce him with a donor's cells. And the goal is for his body to start generating the protein that is missing in his skin that makes his skin so delicate and fragile and it comes for it to come off. So um, at the end of the day, uh, once he will be 100% grafted and will start generating um, my protein, the collagen 7 that is missing, and like basically those are the anchors that hold the skins together. Um, his skin should become a lot more solid and hopefully um, eliminate some of the pain that he's had and definitely improve his quality of life and probably have a much longer life. Yeah, I mean, for for folks who want to see a, a picture just to get an idea of what uh, Jonathan goes through, you can go to our website at am900chml. But really, I mean, it's breathtaking when you see uh, what he endures and, and just uh, the pain he must suffer. You know, the digits of his fingers and his toes, you know, have worn down and, and really, you know, I just can't imagine what he goes through. And he's had a pretty, I think he's had, since we last talked, some some very up high moments, but he's also had some very tough times. He has. You know what? I mean, he's had some great adventures and I mean, he's, you know, like he's grateful for everything that he's experienced. But I mean, at the end of the day, nothing really kind of reduced his pain level. Right. So this is the one thing where we're hoping um, if everything goes well and I mean, there are risks associated to it. So hopefully we can kind of go beyond that. And I mean, we look forward to when, um, you know, at day 100, when his body starts producing uh, the collagen and stuff that he will see a, a huge improvement in the way that his ability to ambulate, just uh, not having so much pain, probably reducing the amount of blistering and the size of his sores. Like finally having some that heal would be like groundbreaking because I mean Jonathan has sores on him that have become chronic wounds and haven't healed in years. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's quite staggering. So, is he excited? Uh, scared? Where are his emotions? Uh, given that this is very Would you like risky. To speak with him. Oh, I'd love to speak to Jonathan. I thought he was sleeping still. <laughs> uh, no, he actually is awake. I'll let you speak with him just in a minute. Wonderful. We're just waiting for Jonathan to get on the phone. He's uh, in uh, being treated at his first chemo treatment yesterday. And uh, hi. hey, Jonathan, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, but I wanted to know how you're feeling. You had your first big treatment yesterday. How are you feeling? I'm okay. Um, just tired, mostly. Yeah, you've been through a lot. Yeah, a little. What What are you feeling? Are you feeling, I mean, you're such an optimistic person. Whenever I talk to you or whenever I've read your story, you just live life as a glass half full. You still there? Yeah, I'm there. You, but you're still, do you still feel really optimistic and positive? Are you excited about this treatment? Yeah, I think so. What would yeah, you like people um, to know about it? That it's not as easy as it, well, of course, everyone knows how tough um, chemotherapy and everything is, but it's even tougher than I would have thought. And that's saying a lot considering I've been through ED for so long. 
Yeah, it's been a very, very big uh, challenge for you. You know, when I when I first spoke to you, you know, there were certain things that you really wanted to see. The Northern Lights were on your list. You wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Um, what kind of dreams and adventures have you ha- been able to enjoy since people have learned your story? Um, I've been able to enjoy a few different things. I've been able to uh, have a lot of time with my family, uh, which was really nice to do before leaving. Um, another thing uh, is I've had, been able to do uh, many, many things in sports uh, with different players and different teams. Um, I've had so many different experiences. It's just really great. Yeah, you, you have really been an ambassador uh, for this disease. And since you've told your story, um, are people learning more about it? And, and do you feel like your, your message is getting out? Definitely. Uh, it's definitely what I was hoping to do, and it's definitely working. It's definitely working. And so I, I take it then that it gives you a little bit more hope and will maybe help you with your, your uh, challenges moving ahead with this medical treatment. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Jonathan, thanks for talking to me. Um, I'll talk to your mom again, but you hang in there, and uh, we're all hoping for you, and I I will look forward to hearing an update. Thank you. You too. Jonathan is is, uh, gone through his first chemo treatment. He's in hospital with his mom, who has been speaking with us. And uh, Tina, are you back with us? I am. Okay. Um, Well, he sounds very, very upbeat, and the Jonathan that I know and uh, seems happy. I mean, this is the first chemo treatment that he's had, so it's going to get tougher. It, it is. Um, it's, he's going to start feeling much yuckier as the days kind of progress. Um, he's very upbeat. I mean, he hasn't stopped. Like, he still has his smile, so I think that's a good sign. But, I mean, it is really tough on him. Yeah, and it, it, the procedure itself is expensive. It's a million dollars, which is covered by OHIP, but you have to cover the costs of travel, uh, hotel, food. That's expensive. We're talking a couple of hundred grand. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I still have a home in Canada and my daughter's still living there as well. Right. So, I mean, I still I'm kind of maintaining two homes uh, while we're away and just trying to make ends meet with what we have. Yeah. But the community does pull behind you. What kind of help are you getting? Um, actually, Deborah Canada has been uh, wonderful. They've been offering financial support. And I mean, our community of Russell, uh, a few people from there started a GoFundMe to try to help uh, with uh, the costs that are involved. Yeah, and we'll put that information up on our webpage if uh, people want to jump in and give a dollar, five dollars, whatever helps. I mean, this is uh, the kind of procedure that uh, I think comes by once in a lifetime, Tina, and you kind of have to jump at it when you get the chance because, as I understand, Jonathan is at the higher end of the age bracket when dealing with this because normally I think kids are treated much younger. Yes, I mean, he's one of the oldest kids. I mean, they're, and it, and it shows because even with like the medical staff, uh, they're not used to having teenagers, right? So, um, it shows that he's one of the oldest kids. I think we're gonna, I think we're, we're learning and they're gonna be learning from this experience as well. Um, but it is definitely something that you just take the opportunity. I mean, it kind of happened that Johnson was a good candidate and everything kind of trickled into, into place. But at the same time, you never are, it's not like I've had years to prepare for this financially, right? It kind of happened, and we just jumped on the opportunity to get it done sooner than later. I don't see myself and Jonathan having waited an extra year to get this done. of the ZB, we wouldn't know where it would be at that point. Yeah, have you have you seen in the last? I mean, was there a point in the last year or two where you thought, okay, things are are, are getting worse? And was there kind of a a point where the doctors and yourself felt, okay, we need to take another step to find some kind of improvement? 
Yes, I mean, last year in 2015, he had a few things done. He had a feeding tube incision done. He had a couple of skin grafts on his back done to try to at least close up that area to potentially give his body uh, the opportunity to heal some of the other areas. He had some amniotic membrane grafts put in, and it kind of did not. Um, the graft took 100%, but within two weeks it was open again. So, I mean, at that point, we had kind of depleted most of our options available to us. So when I had spoken to Johnson's doctor at SickKids, that's when she said, so when do you want to go to Minnesota? And I said, well, right now. Yeah. (laughs) So we kind of got the ball rolling because we didn't see, I mean, really the options. Um, Just trying to manage EB, I mean, the only thing you can do is try to pain control and daily dressings. That's basically the only thing that you have a whole lot of control over. But um, to try to help it get better, there isn't a whole lot of options available to you. So this was our option, and we definitely took it. Even though it is risky. I mean, 30 children, I think, uh, in the United States have been uh, treated like this, but there have been those that didn't make it. Yes. And, I mean, we've been very uh, open. You know what I mean? Like, I've yeah. discussed it with Jonathan. The doctors have discussed with Jonathan. He knows the risks that are associated to it. But at the same time, at this point, um, the outcome, if it is, uh, we, you know, we kind of have to look beyond that and to say, well, this is his best option of improving his quality of life and possibly extended his life. I mean, Jonathan is looking at it as uh, this is going to be a tough year, but it's kind of like sacrificing a year for a lifetime. Does, does Jonathan even realize, I mean, he's such a humble uh, guy. I mean, does he realize that he's, you know, a role model? Does he, does he look at himself like that? Not at all. Uh, whenever people walk in, even now, I mean, there's a nurse that was saying, you know, I saw your documentary before you came and I was really excited to meet you. And he became kind of, I'm not, I'm nobody special. And he, he really takes, he's very, very humble. So he doesn't realize the impact that he's had on not only the EV community, but also just the, like inspired the whole world. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to someone before the show about you and then and Jonathan's story. And I just said, you know, you talk to him and you, you read about him and you realize, I really don't have any problems in the grand scheme of things, knowing full well what you and Jonathan go through on a daily basis. Absolutely. And you know what? And that's what, I mean, he's received so many uh, emails saying that. And I mean, and that's, you know, that's uh, comforting. And at the same time, um, he's managed to do what he's been wanting to do. I mean, Jonathan's ultimate goal has always been to bring awareness to EB, but he brought it a step ahead where he's actually given some people another perspective on their lives and stuff. I mean, he certainly has given me a different perspective since I've been his mom, right? Yeah. I mean, I certainly would not complain of a blister that's from new shoes or just having a bad day. Um, he wakes up with a smile. I think I can do that. Yeah, it's a good day when you can smile. Uh, just quickly before I let you go, uh, what is the best case scenario out of this? What's the best thing that can happen with this treatment? Best case scenario, Jonathan uh, completely uh, accepts uh, my bone marrow. He starts generating the cells. Uh, those cells will start producing the protein that's missing uh, in his skin to hold the skin together. Um, therefore, his skin will get tougher and hopefully reduce his blistering, um, get his skin tougher, um, start healing some of the wounds, and just overall reduce his pain and uh, enhance his quality of life. And, and extend his life? I mean, what are we and looking extend- at it? Absolutely. Definitely. That's associated in that as well. I mean, unfortunately, everybody knows that EB is not something that gets better with time. So eventually, uh, a lot of the kids have skin cancers and just infections that end up, uh, unfortunately, terminating their lives. So we're trying to prevent all of that 
into getting this procedure done. Well, we're all on you. You know, we've got you're we're on your shoulder and uh, looking over you and wishing you well. And of course, I'll keep in touch with you. And um, and I really wish both of you the best of luck. Thanks a lot, Tina. Thanks for talking to me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. The story that I'm talking about is so unbelievable, and I'm talking about that triple murder in Scarborough. It happened on Friday where a family, and almost an entire family, wiped out by an alleged, cro- uh, you know, what is it, a crossbow, a crossbow killing. Brett Ryan is accused of strangling his mother and killing his two brothers with a crossbow in their home. Brett Ryan uh, also, of course, made headlines a, a couple of years ago. He was convicted in a string of bank robberies and became known as the Beard Bandit because he would b- wear a beard. He would disguise himself in a beard. And up until now, we have not been able to tell you the names of these alleged victims because uh, a very rare pub ban was put in place. Now, it's very common that pub bans go in when you're, you know, doing these kinds of stories. Too many, uh, in my in my opinion. But nonetheless, uh, they get put in, and it prevents us in the media or anyone from reporting facts of cases. But but are they always necessary? And in this case, why in God's name would you need a publication ban on the names of the alleged victims? Why? What, the Toronto police said they need it for investigative purposes, but really? I think it's a very restrictive ban. And uh, as you heard from Shannon, you know, she didn't want her name under a publication ban. And that a publication ban, by the way, in sex assault cases is automatic. We cannot report the names of those victims for their privacy. But you heard Shannon, she had to fight to get her name released because she felt inhibited. She felt like her hands were tied and that she could not talk and protect herself. Let's bring Lauren Honickman, criminal lawyer who is all things and very, very smart, smarter than me. <laughs> so you can probably, uh, you know, explain to me why we would need such a restrictive publication ban. Well, you wouldn't. And uh, it, it was so odd when that uh, ban was issued. And, you know, as somebody who's been in court for many years fighting publication bans since I can't remember when, it, it's so frustrating when you see something like this Alex, and you realize that, you know, we, we haven't come as far yet as we want to go. Let, let's understand what, what we mean by publication bans and the type that they are, because you mentioned sexual assault cases. Those are mandatory bans. Those are statutory bans. Those bans are within the criminal code that says the name shall not be published. And that's why even a victim or an alleged victim of a sexual assault has to get a special court order because... There's mandatory language, and we do have some statutory bans like that, where it's mandatory, there is no ifs, ands, or buts, and there are certain ones, and and some of them make sense, and, and you can have a discussion as to whether we need them or not. Then you have what are called discretionary bans, and those are bans that aren't mandatory, but someone has come forward and said, we would like this. Now... The way the system has evolved legally is that before a judge or a justice of the peace issues that type of ban, he or she should hear legal argument as to whether or not it's necessary and meets a very stringent legal test. And that test has been developed through the law over the last 23 years. And so 
What should never happen now with a discretionary ban is that someone should simply walk into court and say, you know, uh, Your Worship, Your Honor, um, uh, the police have advised me that uh, this is a very sensitive issue and we should have a ban here, and then a judge goes, sure, no problem. What should happen in those circumstances is that there should be notice given out to both the defense counsel and to representatives of the media, a special notification to the media, and a special hearing should take place to determine whether or not the ban should issue. And that didn't happen, Aaron. So yesterday, as you saw, Alex, after the judge removed the ban, Mm -hmm. uh, you heard the lawyer who was acting for the different media outlets seek some compensation from the Crown, which I I got a, a, a funny feeling... Uh, the judge is not going to order. However, uh, the point was made by, by Ms. Fisher, and that is there should be a cost here because there should have been absolutely no reason why anybody needed to appear and ask for that uh, ban to be lifted. Yeah, look, I, I, I worry about cases like this because it sets a precedent. And I find it's, it's more more. It's more prone to happening in smaller jurisdictions. You know, Tory Stafford, uh, the Bosma case had some sweeping publication bans that became very, very problematic. I mean, in the Tory Stafford situation, we were dealing with a guilty plea that was being put in uh, by the accused uh, McClintock. We couldn't report anything. And and it became very, very dangerous because I think it sets precedent of what the media can and can't uh, report. So I get very worried when you get an overzealous uh, judge. And and I don't know if this was a justice of the peace in this case that put this this publication ban in. But it's, I think, dangerous when you get people just throwing them on anything uh, because it really uh, changes the way we cover courts and what people have access to. Right, and everybody has to understand the reason for it. And it, it's not because the, the whole notion about publication bans and, and why a very, and I, I, I'll repeat it again, why a very stringent test is applied as to whether a ban is ever issued. It's not because uh, the law has evolved and said, well, you know, we want to be good to the media. You know, like, let, let's give the media the access because they just want to do what they want and they just want to sensationalize and we've got to be good to That has nothing to do with it at all. It, it, what, it, what the reason is, it's, it's actually entrenched in our Charter of Rights under Section 2B of our Charter. It's actually what, the highest right in the land uh, when we talk about the Charter and Charter Rights. And what it is, it's, the, it's called the Open Court Principle. Our courts are presumptively open. And that means that anybody should be able to walk in, anybody should be able to sit there, anybody should be able to report on what's going on there, save and accept under exceptional circumstances, i.e. a publication ban. And that's exactly what, what, what we're dealing with and what we're talking about here. And so it's not just because we want to allow Alex Pearson and other, uh, you know, top-notch court reporters to be able to go there and do their job. No, it's because the, the media is, it's, it's the public's right. Now, the public's right is being upheld vicariously through, through the media, of course, because they're the ones that are there. They're the conduit. But it's, it's the public's right to get the information. That's what this is about. And so I, I've heard it been said so many times before to me, Alex, where people say, oh, Lauren, you're just, you, you know, you've been in the media so long. You just, you just want to be able. No, it's, it's not that. It's because it's a right. It's called the open court principle. And thankfully, 
that cases have evolved all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada on numerous occasions where the courts have said that you just don't issue publication bans without giving the sides an opportunity to make submissions. Sure. And in the case of like a Shannon Graham, who we spoke with before, sex assault. I mean, look, we don't even argue those. It's a given that there's going to be a publication ban. We don't even need to be told that when it comes to sex assault victims that that's put in. But, you know, you did hear from her where she said, I had to fight to get this thing off of me because a publication ban... uh, it, it didn't give her any freedom to defend herself. And, and right. what she ended up going through was the ridicule and the gossip. And, she, you know, her hands were tied and she couldn't defend herself. Yeah. And you know what might end up happening? Because we're seeing this happen more and more, Alex. Yeah. And, and the, the criminal code, as I say, has mandatory language uh, on certain bans. For example, there's, there's mandatory language on the... Um, uh, when it comes to naming uh, a youth under the Youth yep. Criminal Justice Act. That's another example of a mandatory ban. There's a mandatory ban on bail hearings. If an accused asks for a publication ban, it's mandatory. Same on a preliminary hearing. So there's certain sections of the criminal code that have these mandatory bans. Now, when it comes to the sexual assault victims, it's very interesting. There's been this evolution. You can understand why legislatures in the past determine that it, it should be in the, in the alleged victim's best interest to have this ban for a lot of different reasons. So others will come forward. I won't, I won't list them, the policy underlying it. But as you've seen, and we've seen over the last two, three years, many alleged victims, <coughs> excuse me, want to be able to speak. And what we might see is perhaps we may see an amendment one day in the criminal code, maybe sooner rather than later, where the ban becomes mandatory, save and accept when an alleged victim has given a, a written consent to, to lift the ban or, or not issue the ban. So there isn't, um, uh, there, you know, it doesn't, we don't get into a situation where every person has to go to court and make an application and, and go through that process. Yeah. But look, you know, we are in a new age. It's 2016, as we're told. And, uh, you know, social media, I mean, everything is 24-7 as far as information. So the game is changing. And I I think uh, the attorney general uh, is going to have to take a good look at this. And because... You know, we saw this happen in the Bosma trial, and I, I couldn't talk about it at the time, but we had people coming into that court, uh, just everyday people, and then they go home, they get on their Facebook, and they're putting information out there right. that is under a publication ban. Yeah. They don't understand that. And they're breaking the law. And in one case, the police had to show up at someone's house and say, you just broke the law. You know, the very first time the efficacy of publication bans really came into the forefront was during uh, the Paul Bernardo yeah. trial, yep. or, or even before that, when, when Carla Hamolka was arrested. That was just the beginning mm-hmm. of information being disseminated. Now, it wasn't the Internet, per se, yeah. but we had reporters up from the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, the words publication ban, doesn't ex- I don't think they exist yeah. in the uh, American lexicon. Well, no, because they've got cameras in the courtroom. Yeah, so, so they don't, I, it's, and, and I'll remember back then people talking, because you have to remember, publication bans were created. This is true, and it's actually kind of, uh, it's kind of neat. It was at a time when uh, trials were taking place, and you'd be going from one jurisdiction to the next, and you didn't want people, you didn't want to uh, prejudice cases, and information was, was, was just being taken from people to other places. And there was, there was actually reasons for it back then. Nowadays, when you talk about efficacy, 
you know, people get on social media, as you say, and they hide behind cloaks of anonymity. So you have a publication ban. Somebody goes home, they, you know, they, they've got some moniker, and they get on there. You should have heard what's out there, and it's, it's worldwide. Yeah. So, so the reasons for it, you start looking at it, and you say, is it necessary? So all that, that people who deal with this on a daily basis, Alex, all, all people want, lawyers and, and, and participants in the judicial system say, there may be good reasons to ask for a ban. That's arguable, and you can make the argument. But make sure you give notice. Make sure you follow a procedure that if, that if you know, the police may have had good reason. I don't know. The police may have had good reason. They may have said, listen, we need to, for a, on a temporary basis, just for two, three weeks, whatever it may be, we need, we need to get a temporary ban on the publication of the names of, of these victims right now. There may be very good reasons for it. And what you would do, what should have happened, is then the Crown would have then uh, uh, alerted the Justice of the Peace that, that they're going to be applying for a temporary ban on publication. Mm-hmm. They're going to put out notification, and that's what you do. You get everybody back, and you work out the parameters. There may have been good evidence. Maybe, you know, we're talking right now and go, oh, geez, that was silly, etc. And the ba- maybe the police had really good reason for that. And, and the only way you know that is you have a hearing. What you sure. don't do is you just don't walk into a courtroom and say, listen, I was just talking to the staff sergeant in charge of the investigation, your worship. Uh, we need a ban. Right. But, and, but, but, but one, of the pro- one of the, I wouldn't say it's a problem, but one of the things I question is the use of justice of the peace, because a lot of times they're not even lawyers. Uh, these are people that... I, no, no, but they're judicial officers. Well, they are, they, but you don't yeah. need to have a legal background, per se, to be a justice of the peace. No, but, but they, you know, there's a lot of people. I, I would think that every justice of the peace who, who sits in a courtroom right now dealing with these issues knows what we call the Dagenet Mentuck test. Uh, and that's a test dealing with two specific cases that went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I use those words only because people who work in the justice system would know those cases and know what that means. The Dagenet Mentuck test is the legal test that I referred to at the beginning of our conversation, the test that has to be met for someone who wants to get a publication ban. And, you know, through the years, there have been many different types of applications. You know, there's been some accused who try to get uh, their name banned. They don't want they don't yeah. want their name out there. You know, you, you've seen cases, Alex, where there are initials of a case. The reason being um, that if you identify the accused, you may identify the alleged victim. Yes. So, so and that's generally well, speaking in, in cases involving children. Sure. And so that happens, and 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 nobody sits back and says, "Oh, well, that's awful." So there are reasons. There are good reasons, and that's what we want to see. And and that's all. That's really all those uh, people who work in that in in that area of the law they ask for. I think we're getting to a point, believe it or not, in Ontario, where finally there's going to be a notification system in place. It's been in place in many provinces in Canada where a publication ban is being sought, and a notification will come to uh, on on the court website. And you can check it and say, oh, look at that. In courtroom five, there's going to be a publication ban hearing. It used to be, you know, a lawyer walks in and says, you know, can I please get a ban, Your Honor, and and away we go. Uh, We were hoping that those days are through. Yeah, uh, look, I I, I mean, at some point, given it's, 2016, I would have to think, Lauren, that we may one day get cameras in the courtroom. So they're going to oh, have to hey, overhaul listen. it anyway. There it is. There's there's access. There's there's the ultimate access. But and, what the heck's uh, taking so long? This, to me, is like a no-brainer. 
I know, uh, I know, but there are there are people who today still argue the same thing they argued 30 years ago. And, you know, oh, it's awful. Uh, lawyers will play to the camera. The camera intimidates witnesses. Well, it's, maybe uh, we would actually get lawyers who didn't, <laughs> not you, of course, Lauren, but, no. you know, maybe we would <laughs> not get so many delays. <laughs> well, one of the things that, you know, cameras, that, that's the ultimate access. That's and right. You know what? One of the things that I've said, Alex, and you will understand this because you've spent so much time in a courtroom, uh, most people in this country will never walk into a courtroom, will never see what a trial in Canada is like, will still believe that, you know, you get arrested in the first half hour and you have your trial in the last half hour, like law and order, and, uh, and, don't, and don't know what we do here in Canada. And, and the one day, the, I believe that we'll, we'll have complete access and people will get to see our justice system and will understand what it's about and it'll help people and all the fears that people have about that camera that they'll realize that they had no basis to worry about it but unfortunately i think that as we as we still worry about publication bans being issued without due process uh, i don't i i think we're we're still far away from a camera in in canadian courtrooms which is unfortunate because i think if canadians uh, coast to coast to coast uh saw just how much time is wasted <laughs> in the courts they'd be like are you kidding me they'd turn the channel <laughs> No, I, and I know, I know, and it's, uh, there, but there's a lot from the educational point of view, and yet, yeah. and I've heard people. One of the criticisms will be, oh, you, you know, people only want to watch the high-profile trials. Okay, so, so what? Well, you better? sure as heck don't want to watch the bail hearings. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they're pretty I mean, exactly. So, but, but at yeah. the end of it all, you know, when you get a trial that the public's interested, and in, you think back to, well, you talked about the Tim, the the Bosma trial. Yeah. If you talk about the uh, Jean Gameshi trial. Every, every year there's going to be two, three, four very high-profile trials. Um, and, and if you had a camera in there and you saw the witnesses and whatever, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people, people now, we have so much video. You know, we, we have video evidence everywhere. People post videos and, and, and the juries, the, 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 the public, make their determinations immediately once a, a video goes up. Why not watch yep. the trial and see exactly how that evidence plays out in court? But you know what? This entire conversation, very, very important because it's, it's talking about access to justice open court principles and it's something that that is that's not just important to you and i it's important to every single person in this country that's why we're fighting the good fight lauren thank you exactly. <laughs> that's lauren exactly. thanks for joining me lauren my pleasure you're listening to the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on am 900 chml front and center in our news is a headline that came out while i was driving to work today and uh, i've got a couple of economic stories that i want to discuss in this next segment, because they do impact all of us. Uh, one one that I'll get to a little bit later, which is the uh, Ontario Liberals want to launch a spring program. It's a trial period of guaranteed income. What is it? What is guaranteed income? It's essentially, it would be that everyone's guaranteed an annual income of 30 grand a year. But who qualifies? So I'll break it all down and how it would work. But you know, can we afford that kind of program? Last time I checked, we were pretty broke. But uh, the more serious headline, I think, coming out this morning uh, is this uh, very bad news for the economy. And uh, while forecasters will say they saw it coming, the numbers are, are, you know, we have the worst export growth numbers since the markets crashed in 2008. 
So given I am not an expert in all things economy, let's bring in a much bigger brain than mine to break it all down and why it should matter to you. Mike Moffat is an economics expert. Good of you to join me, sir. Oh, thank you for having me. So the numbers come out. Explain to me kind of so that we all understand why are the numbers so bad and, and why should it matter to us? Well, uh, the short story is uh, the Fort McMurray fire. Uh, we sold a lot uh, less oil and gas uh, than we typically do to the United States, uh, simply because those operations had to shut down. So that explains a lot of what's going on here. But even if you take that aside, there's still some bad news that uh, you know we're, our manufacturing sales are relatively flat to the United States. We were hoping uh, they'd be a little bit... Uh, a little bit higher, you know. We're we're seeing a little bit of a business investment, but but not so much. Uh, that that most of our economy right now uh, seems to be driven by uh, consumer demand. That uh, consumers are still out there buying things, uh, buying new homes, but uh, a lot of our other industries either aren't doing well or aren't doing as well as you would uh, think, given the low Canadian dollar. Right, and so it's a bit troubling. So is this something that the uh, Trudeau government should have seen coming? I mean, yeah. you know, the Alberta situation, it's natural disaster, but they, they knew that this happened. Should they have seen these numbers coming, and is there something that they should have been prepared for, uh, been a bit more reactive, uh, proactive rather than reactive? Well, I, I do think, uh, again, the, the markets uh, saw this coming, and I think the government uh, saw this coming uh, once the Fort McMurray fire happened. You know, we, we knew that exports were going to be down. I, I think the, the big rule for this government, or, or frankly any government, is to play the long game, is try and focus on, you know, where you want the economy five to ten years from now. Because there's not much any government can do about these uh, you know, swings from one month to another. But uh, I think what the federal government needs to, to worry about is, again, the, the fact that, uh, you know, manufacturing is picking up but not picking it up enough to, uh, you know, make up for Alberta and Saskatchewan and Newfoundland. And just, you know, the general sort of slow path of the economy, I think, is the worrying trend here, not so much, you know, the, the, the fact that the oil sands have to shut down because they, they'll come back. So, you know, this is just sort of a, a temporary blip. Yeah, but but the bottom line is, you know, there there are things I think that they could do to, you know, put at least confidence back into the market. One of those things would be start approving some of these pipelines, you know, showing, uh, you know, that they want to get product to market. But that that is, uh, you know, would go against the base uh, for Mr. Trudeau. What what is he going to do? Yeah, and to be fair, that that is a difficult uh, decision uh, that they have now, and uh, I fully agree with you. I think that's the kind of thing uh, that this government needs to show, to show the long game. You know, just make sure that uh, Canada is a great place for investment, and you know, we we've got uh, problems right now with that that whole situation with the Nat- uh, National Energy Board. You know, a couple of their members uh, meeting Jean Charest. You know, just the optics. Uh, there aren't good. So, you know, I do think the federal government has a role uh, to create a process where, you know, pipeline companies can, you know, if they meet a certain set of conditions, uh, can get things built. Because it, it, it's in nobody's interest if, you know, pipelines or anybody else, you know, they just can't get anything yeah. done. So I, I do think these pro- processes need to be streamlined. No yeah. Question. It- 
And just to give people an idea of what we're talking about in case you don't follow the National Energy Board, because, gee, why would you? I mean, they are holding hearings in Montreal. This is part of the approval process for things like uh, the Energy East Pipeline, which is so crucial to our economy. Uh, they were disrupted by a handful of protesters. And I think what flabbergasts me, uh, Mike, is that, you know, they've shut down these hearings because a couple of people got really loud. And I'm thinking, gee, so a handful of, of environmentalists are now hijacking the entire Canadian economy or the process uh, which is, you know, put in place to to you know approve or or not approve these pipelines. It's pretty shocking. Yeah, it is concerning because I mean the, these processes naturally have uh, protesters. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's uh, going to be people, and frankly, on, on both sides, who who want this outcome to be one way or another. But it is very unusual uh, to see that the process just shut down entirely for a handful of, uh, of protesters. That doesn't normally happen. So. You know, you, you wonder if there, there's something else uh, going on here. But, again, I, I'm hopeful that the government gets this back on track because I, I agree with you that, uh, you know, this sends a, a negative signal to, to international investors that, you know, Canada is not open for business, and, and that's the last thing this economy needs right now. Yeah, and certainly while uh, Mr. Trudeau is in China right now, I mean, hey, they like oil. They could buy oil and a lot of it. These are the kinds of things that I think he's got to have the conversation on. Yeah, absolutely. And I know those uh, issues have come up in China. So issues around uh, Chinese investments in Alberta, uh, yeah. which the, the, the last government uh, kind of kiboshed, uh, put, put rules about uh, state-owned enterprises not being able to invest in the oil sands. And frankly, when you're dealing with China, you're dealing with pretty much nothing but state-owned enterprises. Uh, but there's also uh, pipeline issues uh, going the other way, going to B.C., um, issues around, uh, you know, getting various pipelines built, uh, getting the natural gas terminal built that, you know, this uh, Trudeau, uh, you know, is in a tough spot, uh, not partly uh, with uh, Christy Clark, but mostly with the uh, mayor of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, by the way, yeah, and I, I'm not going to get into the politics of of his background or that, but the bottom line is, I think we all agree, the pipelines need to get built. We've got to get product to market. This, I think, announcement this morning with these numbers is a good, um, almost excuse for Mr. Trudeau to say, hey, hold on a second. We've got to run this economy. We're in trouble. Uh, you know, their stimulus spending, and we've gone into severe uh, debt, and you'll explain this better than I will. I mean, look, they ran a campaign on running deficits. It was supposed to be $10 billion a year. It's way, way beyond that. But their idea of stimulating the economy was to put a lot of infrastructure uh, projects out there. But I don't get the sense from what we're hearing this morning that that's what needs to happen. Well, I, I think that will help in the long run, as long as those infrastructure projects, uh, you know, make economic sense. Uh, you know, there's a lot of areas where, the, uh, you know, Canada needs more infrastructure. You know, you just look at uh, gridlock uh, around the 401, around the GTA. Yes. You know, that's certainly an area, I think, worthy of of investment. So, but but I agree. I, I think these numbers uh, should give the federal government some pause. And I actually I think this prime minister is well positioned to get things done on pipelines in almost sort of a Nixon to China sense. Yeah. That, that nobody's going to accuse, uh, you know, Trudeau of being in the pockets of, of the oil industry, mm -hmm. which I actually think gives him a little bit more room to maneuver than the last government had. Yeah, I got to agree. I mean, look, if there's any time that I think Trudeau should be able to use his star power and his ability to connect with people in Aboriginal groups, environmental groups, he's right now so popular that he could say, guys, we're going to have the process, but for the the entire country and for, for the social programs that we want, this is the time that we have to do it. I just think 
do it now. Just get something done and put some confidence in the economy and, and overall, and I think that will help. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. And I think that's, you know, what international lo- investors are looking for is just transparency yeah. and a clean process. If you, you, they go to an investment, you know, and, and the federal government has to turn it down for, for one reason or another, uh, you know, naturally that's disappointing, but they want to just see that that process is fair. They're willing to live with, you know, getting turned down if they believe that the process is fair and not stacked against them. I think it gets a little more concerning when the process is opaque, nobody's really sure how the decisions are getting made. That's when international money says, you know what, maybe we'll go invest in in Australia or or somewhere else instead of Canada. Yeah. Uh, Well, we'll wait and see, and uh, and I'm sure we'll get some, um, uh, certainly the reporters will be asking Mr. Trudeau uh, in scrums, and so we'll see throughout the day how they plan to respond to the uh, numbers. Uh, But it it did catch everyone kind of, I think, by surprise this morning. But the other the other story I kind of want to pivot to is a headline that caught my eye. And it involves a pilot project uh, being rolled out by the Ontario Liberals next spring. So this is something that they talked about in their last budget. And I'm talking about guaranteed income. And as I understand it, and you can explain it better than me, is it will guarantee a $30,000 annual uh, sa- uh, you know, money to those under the poverty line. And, and so explain to me what is guaranteed income? Would it mean that Alex Pearson, if I don't make $30,000 next year, I automatically would get a check in the mail from the government? How does it work? Yeah, so so there's a variety of uh, different funding models. So that, that would be one of them, that it would just be sort of a top-up where you file your tax return, and if you you know made under the amount, so say it was thirty thousand, you, you got a check for the difference. That's one model. Another one uh, would work uh, like the uh, current child benefit checks, where the government sends everybody a check, and then you you know you end up getting taxed on some of that amount based on your income. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different models, and I think that's one of the reasons why the provincial government uh, wants to do a pilot project, just because there's a lot of different uh, funding models. But the idea here is that they want to decouple, uh, you know, supporting people without, um, you know, without uh, having job status. Because part of the concern now is that we've created these welfare walls where uh, people on welfare are actually made worse off when they go go into the job market because we stop taking all of these benefits away because those benefits are are conditional on Mm -hmm. employment or whatever else. So the idea here is that you remove some of these conditions and give people uh, more of an incentive to work because you don't create these uh, barriers to them joining the labor force. And so does this apply to every Ontarian? So is this the kind of thing that if they did actually go forward with this kind of program, that your tax return, you know, everyone would be judged on that. And then so it's not like you have to go in and fill out paperwork. You'd go, your your tax return would show, okay, this person only makes 20000 We're going to bump them up to the 30000 correct? But at the same yeah, time, yeah, they correct. can still and work and bring in an income and they'll never go under 30000 yeah. So again, uh, <laughs> it depends on what they set the level. I think you know. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near thirty thousand because that would uh, you know that would bankrupt uh, the provincial government in my view. But that but that's the basic idea. That's one of the reasons uh, why these plans tend to be popular uh, with libertarians and pe- some people on the right is because you get rid of a lot of government administration that way. That you don't have somebody in the government deciding sort of who's worthy or who's not. 
you know, it's it's an automatic process. You file your tax return, and if you, you know, didn't make enough, you uh, receive a check. Yeah, look, I, I don't know how to feel about it. Parts of it make a lot of sense to me, and other parts I worry about, you know, would this be abused, you know? So will it, uh, you know, breed a, a sense of laziness that, you know, someone might say, well, I don't have to work. I'm going to get an automatic 30000 But at the same time, I see the issues that you, you point out with, with unemployment or welfare, those because those programs would go away, correct? Yeah, and that's the idea, that this uh, would replace a lot of our existing welfare programs. And I, I think one of the reasons why we're all sort of uh, conflicted uh, or, or sort of, you know, on the fence about this is that the details really matter. The way that they design this really matters. And if you design it poorly, I fully agree. You, you give people an, in, an incentive to stay home, and that's kind of what these, these programs are trying to avoid in the first place. So those details really matter. How you design the program really matters. We don't have those details yet from the provincial government, so it's kind of hard to see whether or not you know we we think this is going to work or not going to work. Yeah, interestingly, uh, someone uh, from the Senate, a former senator, uh, Hugh Segal, was brought in by the Liberal government to study this, and he he grew up poor, so he's all about this. He wants this program in place. He he sees it as beneficial, but he did put out the warnings that if you do it, this is the structure you know he's going to put out uh, through his report it'll have to be done in a very very specific way or you know the province will bungle it and it will cost us a lot of money that we don't have yeah, no, exactly right. And and I, I'm with Siegel on this. I do think there are some merits to this idea if it's structured correctly. Again, particularly uh, if it helps break down those barriers to people on welfare uh, getting jobs, then I think this is a fantastic thing. But the government really needs to get the details on right, right on this, because if they don't, uh, you know, it, it could just end up co- costing taxpayers billions but not actually make uh, the poor any better off than they are now. Yeah, and so this will be a pilot project. Is Are there other jurisdictions? Has this ever been tried? Because I know that the federal government is not going to be part of this. I know other provinces are looking into doing this. But are there other jurisdictions or models in the world that this has worked the short answer, I mean, is no for the general population. I mean, we do have things like old age security uh, for seniors, you know, those child benefit checks uh, for young people. So in, in, in a sense, I mean, those are kind of like basic income, but not for, you know, 18 to 65-year-olds. Uh, there was a pilot project done in uh, Manitoba back in the 70s, uh, jointly between the federal government and the province of Manitoba. Uh, it was actually never finished. The proje- program got scrapped, so we don't have good details. Uh, Finland is doing a, a pilot project uh, right now. Uh, again, the, they haven't released the details of that yet. So it's the kind of thing that uh, jurisdictions are looking at, but nobody's ever really done in a uh, full-scale manner. Right. And, and and while a lot of people do support this, uh, no one, apparently, when it comes to looking at the numbers, uh, the majority of the population will not accept this program if it means a bump in, in ta- you know, if, if taxing, you know, increases are going to come in, they don't want it. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. And that's what we have to remember, that if somebody is getting a dollar more, that means somebody else is getting a dollar less. Um, so, it, you know, there's there's no free lunches here. I mean, I think there are ways to better design the programs. Again, you know, maybe take some of the discretion away from, from bureaucrats, you know, might be helpful. But at the end of the day, it's changing how money is transferred from one person to another. So if there's winners, there's going to be losers from this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting. We'll see how it uh, all plays out and watch for that report. But thanks for the insight on it. Oh, thank you for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.